Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... People that are in the formal labour market, they are under the line of poverty. So people are working and they cannot be over the line of poverty. The Argentine presidential election is moving into its final phase, and a populist candidate is gaining a lot of traction with younger voters. Trouble is, his views on the economy look like just making a bad situation even worse. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. But first, Sean Turnell is an economist from Macquarie University advising the Myanmar government of Aung San Suu Kyi, who was thrown into jail after the military coup in Myanmar along with the Prime Minister. It was just five days after the coup and he was held captive for almost two years. Thankfully, he's been returned to Australia and has written a memoir of his ordeal entitled An Unlikely Prisoner, which has just been released. He was asked by Laura Devoy to explain how it felt to be incarcerated for almost two years. It felt every day of that nearly two years. At various points, I thought I would never get back home. And you were a financial advisor to the uh, president of Myanmar? That's right. I, I was the advisor to Do Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, the 1990 Nobel Peace Prize winner and leader of the country's civilian government. Now, she was leader of the civilian government, seemingly was on the track of doing everything right with Myanmar, but the military uh, decided that they knew better. Yeah, that's right. So we were just on track. So I, I'd been there for about five years. And, of course, Myanmar is one of those countries that, well, is in a terrible state. Um, compared to the rest of mainland Southeast Asia, Myanmar had missed the whole development story, so it has never become one of the Asian tigers and it had been ruled by the military for decades. Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi came into government in 2016. It was a bit of a struggle, but, yeah, we were roughly on track. We, we were quite confident, as 2020 went on, that we were at the cusp of Myanmar, you know, really turning around and starting to follow the example of other countries such as Vietnam and so on. Now, you were, as we said, a financial advisor to the president. Now, you were there uh, in a, a capacity literally from the Australian government. That's right, eh? So I, uh, I was an academic at Macquarie Uni, but my speciality had always been Myanmar and its economy. Uh, and I was a historian, if you like, of that as well. So when Dorsu got into government, uh, she asked, and I got to know her over the decade, she asked could I come over. Uh, and at first they didn't think that that would be possible, but then I got in contact with the Australian government who thought, well, this would be a good idea. Uh, and so through an Australian government aid program, I was sort of subcontracted, if you like, to that new civilian government, just to give them a hand on uh, economic reform. So you were an advisor to her over that period. Now, once the military stepped in, and uh, basically it was a coup, wasn't it, that, uh, that they orchestrated, but you were put under arrest immediately? Five days after the coup. So the coup took place on the 1st of February 2021, and I was arrested on the 6th of February 2021. Um, in, in that intervening period, I, I had tried to get out of the country because I'd you know, thought that I would probably be on the military's list. Uh, but as it turned out, and people will recall, of course, that this is the era of COVID uh, and there were no flights to be had. So I had to um, basically just sit there. I, I had a number of feelers out to try and get 
some sort of flight out of the country, but anyway, it turned out that I couldn't. And, uh, yeah, on that 5th of February, I was arrested by the military. But they had you tabbed as a spy. They did. That, that was their major accusation, was that, that, uh, that the truth of my story was that I was a spy. Uh, funnily enough, not working for the Australian government, ASIO, but allegedly I was working for MI6. So on top of everything else was sort of vague accusation that I was Australian James Bond which likewise uh, would have been extremely fanciful. But um, anyway, that's, the, that's what they tried to hook it on. Um, but, but they had another motive of, as well, of course, because by accusing me of that, they were hoping to uh, get to Dorsu or Hong Kong Su Chi and members of her government. So in other words, they wanted to use me against my fellow reformers and friends in Myanmar as well. And, and, and that aspect of it you know, really stung me, probably more than anything else. Tell me, uh, you, you were saying you were a spy like a James Bond. Did you have a number? No, I certainly didn't. Um, I had a mobile phone number. That's probably about the only number I ever had. Oh, and then a prison number. What am I talking about? Yes. I was then given a prison number the whole time I was there, and I was told to remember that. And, you know, not once did I remember it. I was often asked, to barked out by a, a prison guard saying, what's your number? And I could never, ever remember that number. <laughs> We've got another quote here from uh, no uh, no less than Anthony Albanese saying uh, uh, what uh, Sean Turnell endured in his 650 days of incarceration is something that no human being should have to endure, yet he did it with grace and even in inhumane conditions with profound humanity. That's right. Um, in fact, he was very, very nice to me uh, throughout, I should say, because I got to hear of the effort for the Australian government trying to get me out. But then when we got back, uh, he was incredibly nice to me, as was the Foreign Minister Penny Wong. But uh, to keep it bipartisan, the, the opposition was very nice to me as well. People like Simon Birmingham and so on were, uh, and Peter up actually. So everyone, they were all just really great. So in many ways, even though my story was quite terrific in so many ways, it was a little bit life-affirming as well, because I would encounter the best of humanity all along the way, as well as some of the work. Dr Sean Turnell speaking there with Laura Devoy about his privations as a prisoner in Myanmar. The Argentine election is on a knife edge as a chainsaw-wielding economist challenges the status quo. With the nation suffering years of inflation from a succession of different governments, a new right-wing populist candidate has emerged. Javier Malay, who could ride to power on the back of frustration directed political status quo. Stephen Hill asked University of New South Wales PhD student German Ritchie to describe how a chainsaw-wheeling economist pundit could be seen as the possible solution to the Argentine Malays. Well, I think it has to do with the failure of the traditional politics in Argentina. Historically, there are two main parties in Argentina. Peronism, that has always been more related to social welfare and social justice. And on the other side, the radical civic union. In Argentina, we are experiencing something which is completely novel and contradictory. That is that some people that are in the formal labor market, they are under the line of poverty. So people are working and they cannot be over the line of poverty. So these are things about inequality and the capacity of the income to, to support the, the cost of lives that this government that has been traditionally 
linked to social welfare, it is not being able to address. So in this context, some voices that are having like a, a very extreme discourse, uh, for example, saying that the central bank has to explode and all this rhetoric that is very, maybe we can link it to Bolsonaro, maybe we can link it also to Trump. It's making sense for people. The traditional parties are not giving any solution to their daily problems. And while Australians like to complain about the cost of living, inflation in Argentina is over 100%. And this has led into many necessities being out of reach for, as you mentioned, the population. I think around about 40% of the population is living under the poverty line. With inflation having been high under both the Peronist government and also the traditional conservative administration, was, is much of Millet's appeal that, that the electorate is just tired with this continual stagflation? Yes, what his proposal has to do uh, to combat inflation, and and that is why it is so seductive for some people, because it seems that all he has to offer will combat inflation. And also we have an experience in Argentina, we still have in periods of inflation, which has deepened in 2018, after Argentina signed an agreement with the IMF, uh, the biggest loan that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, gave to any country. And since then, there are different reasons that, of course, governments can blame. For example, the war with Ukraine or the pandemic, or now we have a lot of problems with selling crops to the to the war. Competing with Malay, you have Sergio Mesa, the economics minister. How is Mesa perceived in Argentina? Well, Massa, he's the prime minister of the economy. So that's what makes really uh, weird in a way, these current elections, because it has to do with a minister, which is in a way failing because he cannot control inflation. But at the other time, he's still competitive. Millet, who who got 30% of, of votes, he became number two, which is showing that there is a kind of peak of people who adhere to, to his ideas. So going back to your question, Massa has the big challenge of being the Minister of Economy. So in a way, he's responsible for this economic uh, situation. He's also a a leader that is completely different from Millet, who is an outsider. He's a traditional man of politics. And he's also being known of having very good contacts uh, with the United States. And for example, in this uh, period of of time in which Argentina is, is having a huge theft with the IMF, he has been able to renegotiate with the IMF, also to get some funds from other countries, which is an, a kind of unprecedented. He's still competitive. That has to do with all the radical position that is Millet's taking. Millet's discourse move a bit more to the center. And well, maybe he could be more seductive to the rest of the public. However, his speech has always been different from the traditional politics. He, he used to call the politicians as casta. Uh, which is like the traditional people that get all money from people. So, so, so Millet has come under fire from a range of esteemed economists, such as Thomas Piketty, that his policies will lead to increased inequality. As the campaign has continued, have his policies been more adequately put under the spotlight? Or is he like Trump? Has he kind of been able to sort of exist in a sort of popular sort of post-truth bubble? Uh, he has a very subjective discourse because he's populist, not because he's offering something to people. For example, he can clearly say to to people that uh, he's going to quit every subsidies that they, that people receive, for example, to, for transport. And this is something that it's, it's a kind of novel for Argentina, going, going to do cuts uh, on public expenditure. And this, so there are some people that receive it well because the state is not working well. So in that sense, makes sense for a lot of people that who understand that, well, uh, I prefer like the state having less expenditures, I will have less money to pay. Also, he's doing quite well with young people. Normally, you think of young people generally favour the more progressive government. It seems quite strange that um, Malay would be yes. the 
be the most popular with the young people? This is something very particular that most of the young people are interested in Millet. And also one of the novelties of his campaign was how he could penetrate all the new platforms that are not very manageable for elder people. He has a very particular style that is for younger people who want a change. Even, for example, they don't know about the dictatorship or all the things that are being challenged. German Ritchie from the University of New South Wales Department of Politics and International Relations speaking there with Stephen Hill. The EPA has issued a stop work order to the New South Wales Forestry Corporation in Flat Rock State Forest after a lack of proper identification of den trees for the greater glider in logging areas. This is the second stop work order issued to the Forestry Corporation to protect the greater glider this year. Stephen Samara spoke with New South Wales Greens MP Sue Higginson about the severity of the threat to greater gliders. That's not something that should be taken lightly at all, particularly given the environmental protection laws that we have that apply to forestry operations are actually considered quite weak and quite low. So the fact that the Forestry Corporation has been found in suspected or alleged breach of the logging operation environmental laws is very significant. What are the consequences of this recent damage to greater glider habitats? What we know is that in Flat Rock State Forest, a number of greater gliders had been recorded as being present in the logging area, but that Forestry Corporation had not identified or located any greater glider den trees. Now, we know these den trees are where greater gliders actually live and they sleep during the day in those. They are the bigger, older trees with the larger hollows. They are fundamental to the survival of greater gliders. And right now, those den trees are literally the line between extinction and the survival of greater gliders. Citizen scientists went into the logging area and identified what they say is a greater glider den tree almost immediately 30 metres of the logging operation. Once a greater glider den tree is identified, logging operations have to be excluded from a 50 metre radius of that den tree. We know that prescription is in place because that is designed to assist in the survival to beat the extinction of greater gliders. Forestry Corporation was found in breach of that. So that's why the community went in and took direct action and stopped the logging and then contacted the EPA immediately. I wrote to the EPA uh, and we said, it is clear there is a greater glider dentry. We need a stop work order. And the EPA rightly issued and granted that stop work order. Why has native forest logging continued for so long? We know that it is costing taxpayers in the order of $30 million in losses over the past two financial years to continue logging. And a recent report was dropped the week before last that showed those millions of dollars in losses, as well as some $250 million in subsidies, that's what it's costing the taxpayer And that's not even calculating the environmental cost of the harm that we're causing to these very, very important ecosystems that are our public native forests. I think that in no uncertain terms, we are heading very fast 
to the end of logging the public native forest estate. The New South Wales government really needs to step up and show some leadership, like what happened in Victoria when they declared and brought forward the end of native forest logging. Can you elaborate on what those alternatives to native logging are? We know that healthy forests produce and generate clean water and we know that they are literally the source of town drinking water supplies all across New South Wales. We know that they are fundamental for soil carbon and soil health, which farming and agriculture and food security relies on. And we know that they are the front line of addressing the extinction crisis. So many of our forest-dependent species are literally the species on the top of the extinction list at the moment. We're talking about koalas, greater gliders, yellow belly gliders, some of those ground-dwelling mammals, the owls, the birds. Um, we know that the forest is home to so many of those species. And, of course, we know that these landscapes are incredibly important as cultural heritage landscapes. And finally, as we move into a drier summer, most importantly... We know, and the science is in, post the 2019-2020 fires, that we know forests that are logged are more susceptible to extreme and more frequent fire. And we need to be protecting these forests from fire. We need to be allowing them to regenerate so that they become functioning forests. There are a million reasons why we need to end the industrial logging of these forests and protect them. And let's remember, developed nations across the world that have destroyed all their forests are now working around the clock to work out ways of regenerating their landscapes and trying to rewild environments. And here we are in New South Wales, still logging some of our incredibly ancient, unique public native forests. New South Wales Greens MP Sue Higginson there speaking with Stephen Samaras. It was World Diabetes Day this week, and this disease is growing at an alarming rate with almost 2 million diabetics in Australia alone. It's the seventh most common cause of death. It affects Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders even more, as they are three times more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. I spoke with Pat Mills, the Lions National Diabetes Coordinator, about their efforts to raise awareness. As Lions volunteers, you've been spreading awareness by walking... 100,000 kilometres, that's a long way, isn't it? It it is absolutely a long way. How have you done this? (laughs) How have we done this? This has been absolutely sensational. What what all Lions clubs around Australia have been um, working, walking, um, and so so everybody, it's all about um, diabetes awareness, it's about healthy and it's about living and it's about getting active. And so people have just been walking and walking and walking and so... We got to 100,000 kilometres early this morning, but at the moment we're up to 105,000 kilometres. So oh, fantastic. Um, we've, got, we've got people um, doing this all the time. But what we wanted to do was lap the map, which is 27,500 kilometres around Australia, and we've done that four times at the moment. So everybody is very excited about the fact that there's been lots of people out walking, but it's not only walking. People have also been running, um, riding bikes. There have been some people who have been doing exercise on treadmills in their gyms. So there's been a bit of a competition with some people with um, um, walking on their treadmills. But one of the other things that um, happened is too, we have Leo's clubs, which is for the youngsters in our community. 
and we have a Leo's Club from um, Rolling Stone, which is up near Townsville, and they did a colour run. So they had a, absolutely uh, had a ball with their colour run. Wait, and what's a colour run? What's a colour run? A colour run is where you run and everybody throws coloured powder at you, coloured oh. powder at you, and it all lands on you when you get and you're cu- covered from head to toe with green, pink, blue, wow. and all of that sort of thing. <laughs> I see. As you run past, as you yeah. run past, someone fires something at you, and you get coloured, covered with some, and you have a lot of fun. Sounds like a lot of fun, yes. <laughs> now, just on the serious side, for people who aren't aware exactly what diabetes is, there's there's type one and type two, isn't there? And and uh, there's a, there's a big prevalence uh, of an uptick in type two, isn't there? Isn't that what the yes, yeah. yes, there is what there is type one. There is type 2 and there's also gestational t- diabetes as well. So ladies who are pregnant sometimes develop diabetes during their pregnancy. And then there's also um, lately they've been discovering that there is a type 3 diabetes which is, re- is related to, sometimes related to dementia. But mostly what we work with is type 1 and type 2. And type 1 is where people have to have insulin for their life because their pancreas doesn't produce any insulin at all. And so they have to have injections all the time or have pumps on all the time. And then we have type 2. But most people, most people, I'm not saying all, but most people with type 2, it can be controlled by um, tablets. It can be controlled by diet and exercise as well. So, there's, you know, there's no one, uh, one easy uh, treatment for everybody, but um, everybody has an individual treatment. So it's best to get, talk to their diabetes educators, their doctors, endocrinologists, and their diabetes educators and make sure that they're all getting the right information. Because yeah. uh, there are other associated serious uh, heart issues oh, that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Eyesight... Kidneys, yes. um, and <laughs> you can lose you can lose toes and 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 Absolutely. whole yes. limbs, can't you? Because it's Absolutely. yeah, yes. Yes. Um, so it's, 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 it can be very serious for a lot of people. It can be, and if it's not controlled and looked after, it can be, and that's why it's really really important that people do do uh, go and see their um, GPs, make sure that their blood pressure is watched, make sure that they op- go off and ha- see a podiatrist, particularly if you're unable to look after your feet yourself, which some people are. You can't actually even – some people are, are unable to cut their own toenail. So an ingrown toenail is not a, is not very good because that could go, go into something that could be quite severe. But just looking after just looking after your health, and it's really, really important that people are always – Conscious, and I think this is one of one of the things with diabetes is that people have to be making decisions throughout the day, every day, about what they're doing, about how much exercise they're having, about what food they're eating, about how much insulin they need. Have I taken my tablets? This is all something that's that's prevalent with them all day, every day. So they've got to be aware of all of this sort of thing. But you know, it, please be aware that you need to be checked regularly. And I think too, um, Indigenous people are are more likely to be affected by diabetes, and they're often in remote areas. So that that creates special challenges for them too, doesn't it? Oh yes, of course. And there's there's a big um, there's a lot of research being done with diabetes, and there's a lot of ethnic communities, there's a, the Aboriginal communities, there's a lot of other ethnic communities as well who seem to be susceptible to ha- to getting type two diabetes, but. Out in the remote communities, the diabetes educators in the remote communities are doing a wonderful job. And there's a lot of, at the moment, there's a lot of research being done 
to assist everybody. So I think that, you know, we, we talk about who who the, who are the people who are most prevalent to it, but I don't think sometimes we don't really know. But it's all about, of course, there's a lot of it's about diet, exercise and all of those sorts of things as well. But But people just need to be aware that, there is help out there and there are people out there that can help you at all, all times. And please don't be afraid to be asking people for help. And, and I suppose uh, some of the things you might notice if you are getting towards uh, the stage of needing to get, to get some advice is uh, you know, drinking a lot of water and, and craving a lot of sugary mm. foods. Is, am I right there? Yeah, uh, probably um, drink, getting quite thirsty, getting tired. Um, passing a lot of urine is another one as ah, well. Right, yes, yes. Yes. So um, So yes, any of those sorts of things, yeah, you know, yes, have have yes. a look. Have a look yes. at, and see where you can get some help. There, there are yeah, these state based uh, um, organizations that are available to you. And yes. I guess we have to thank thank you and, and all of the, the Lions and Leos that are are walking yes. around and, and helping people become aware that diabetes is a serious problem for everywhere around the world, really, isn't it? Thank you very much. Pat Mills, the Lions National Diabetes Coordinator, speaking with me there. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.